Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm your quarantine A People's Theology host, Mason Menega. In this episode, I talk with Carrie Connolly. Carrie is a writer, life coach, and author of Good White Racist, Confronting Your Role in Racial Injustice. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Cat and the Hurricane. Cat and the Hurricane is an indie rock band from Wisconsin. You can get connected with both Carrie and Cat and the Hurricane in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mesa There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today, I have my dear friend, Carrie Connolly, and uh, not only, Carrie, do I say your name slightly wrong, uh, it's just a a thing that I have, Um, (laughs) but not only that, and not only are you a writer, and not only are you a mom, and not only are you a wife, uh, but you are one of my very best friends, uh, and a classmate, and you're just all around one of my favorite people in the entire world, and not... I mean, I, I really don't get to interview a lot of people that I know very well on this podcast. So it's always really a treat to be able to interview someone like yourself about a, work, a piece of work that I think is really great, too. So uh, I love the fact that this won't be just simply like me interviewing you, but it's going to be like just a whole conversation uh, that is kind of an extension of all sorts of conversations that we've had mostly slightly drunk so i was just gonna say you have to you have to include that path that part of it yes and the feeling is wholly wholly mutual so thank you so much for that so with that said uh my very first question who is carrie connelly to carrie connelly oh my gosh who who am i (laughs) is that what you just asked me (laughs) i I did just ask you that oh my gosh well you just already kind of covered it but i think for the purposes of of this subject matter i should say that i am a white cisgender straight american christian did i leave anything out middle class mm-hmm. woman um so jersey. i identify from new jersey yes i have no idea how to put my own gas it's a real thing and um <laughs> i know it's kind of crazy uh and yeah so that's me i like to drink merlot with my dinner and i have two amazing kids and a cat and you've been to my house my friend mm-hmm. You know the deal. <laughs> uh, and I mean, speaking of the Merlot, it's not like you just like a glass of Merlot. Like you no. like the bottle of Merlot. <laughs> well, I like to share the bottle. No. I like let's not give the wrong impression. I like I to mean, share the bottle. I mean, maybe you'll buy other bottles for other people, and, but well, and have you know, your own we, bottle. 
you help in that process. I, I don't know how many we had lined up after that Dallas trip. We really should have, like, it, it felt a little, like, fr- like fraternity-like, but did, we, we should have taken, like, a picture of all of it at we the end. We really should have, but it w- there were multiple people there. It was not just you and I, so we had some help, but we did all partake. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, <laughs> a- as you mentioned, you are a writer, uh, and you wrote an amazing book that I think for for us white people is absolutely critical. I think it really should be in the the library of every white person uh, that lives in America right now. Um, and uh, anyway, it's called Good White Racist. Mm-hmm. And I think unlike a lot of the books that I interview people uh, about, this one I actually kind of know a little bit more intimately because I saw the whole process of this. I remember when this the idea first emerged and yep. I was with you as you wrote the thing. Yep. Um, and so to actually have like a copy, a physical copy in my hands, it's sort of like a little baby coming to fruition. <laughs> yes, it's true. So uh, with that said, um, I know you learned a lot as you wrote this book, you learned a lot theologically, you, you learned a lot historically, you learned a lot sociologically. So what was something maybe factually or theologically or whatever that you uh, that you learned while you were writing the book? While I was, oh, oh my goodness. Um, I, I, I don't know, the whole, the writing of the book happened long before I sat down to write the book, right? So, <laughs> which is the way, you know, Um, As I started to learn things and as I started to be exposed to different kinds of theology um, and especially womanist theology, Mm -hmm. liberation theology, um, and as I had the pleasure of of being in classrooms that were led by people of color and often, and you and I were um, often in these same classes where white people were the minorities Mm -hmm. in these classes, these classes were... were, um, filled with people of color and it was such a rich experience for me. Um, And I I think that probably one of the most important things that I learned as a white person and an opinionated white person at that is that um, I can learn so much if I just shut up, (laughs) right? (laughs) Like I, there is so much out there in the world for me to learn that I don't know. Experiences of other people, especially the experiences of people who are are different than I am, who walk around in different skin, who have different experiences than I do. There's so much for me to learn. And if I could just be quiet for a little bit of time, even though I think I have a really great idea that I want to share with the class, mm-hmm. it's probably a better idea if I just be quiet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Honestly, that's probably one of the most valuable lessons I learned. And I, I've watched... I think I've kind of watched uh, myself through through my seminary journey and even some some of our classmates. And I think we've all kind of come to this level of maturity that we didn't have three years ago when we started, mm-hmm. you know, um, where we can kind of do that and go, yeah, I think there's more in the world for me to learn than there is for me to teach. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, that sort of answers my next question. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I was... I'm for this question. I'm really curious. Is there like something maybe like, oh, there was a historical event that happened that I had no idea that you learned while in the process of writing? Well, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what, what like, are one of those things? Or maybe there was something theologically something, or like, whoa, like I had no idea womanist theology said that or whatever. Yeah. No, well, no. Well, I'm fascinated by the, the, 
the womanist uh, womanist theology in in the way that it cares for all humanity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that that speaks to me. And I think that that is is one of the greatest gifts that it has that it offers the world is this idea that we can care for each other, right? While still practicing self agency and still saying like, no, 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 hold up, a second, you know when I say justice for all, I mean, for me too. Right. Mm. (laughs) You know, like, and, and I, I love that, but I, but also for my oppressor, because it recognizes the the disfigurement of the soul of the oppressor. Right. So that Mm. Mm. I think is, is freaking brilliant and amazing. And, um, I aspire to it. I, I can't, as a white woman, I can't claim it. Um, but I aspire to enact it, to embody it Mm -hmm. in my, in my life. Mm -hmm. Um, when you say an historical fact i when we took our class on the theological ethics of martin luther king jr mm-hmm. and what i learned about the black panthers is mm. was so powerful because i realized that i had a very whitewashed uh version of who the black panthers were in history right mm-hmm. and here's the crazy part here is the crazy part i knew a black panther but I did. What? I know. Yeah, I know. And he was one of my favorite people. And I did not know that he was in the Black Panthers until after he died. And I don't want to say his name because his his uh, widow told me this um, after um, after he passed away. Uh, and, and it's possible that it was said at his funeral, but I still I'm not, I can't remember for sure. But he went to prison for 20 years um, mm. because of his activities with the Black Panthers. And um, he was one of my most favorite people. We did ministry together. We we mentored kids together. And I, when when I learned everything that I learned about the Black Panthers and about the way their leader was essentially executed by the United States government, mm-hmm. and when I learned about all of the good that they had done in the world, feeding people and educating people that we never heard of because they were simply uh, simply displayed as the, the typical savage construct, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. you know, we have to make um, black people something to fear, somebody, people to fear, right? And, um, and th- they did that very successfully in, in my mind. And so when I actually learned um, more of the truth of what they were doing, I was shocked and bereaved and mm. angry, angry, um, especially when I saw those pictures of the site where he had been mm-hmm. assassinated. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so that was definitely a, and that was, I was writing the book proposal mm. during that class. Speaking of which, 
again, like I mentioned at the beginning, I, I know a little bit about how this book even came to be. So I, I and I think the background of it and the story of the unfolding of this book is really interesting. <laughs> so how did Good White Racist come to be? I, I still distinctly remember us in our um, our intro to theology class uh, where we were assigned a particular podcast episode to listen to. And and us having mm. our conversation and at the end of our conversation, you I, I think at the time it was sort of offhanded comment or a joking, joking comment. But it, you mentioned something. Like, well, there, there's a book idea. So let's yeah. let, let's talk a little <laughs> bit about that story so and how um, and how uh, it came to be. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So we were assigned uh, we, we received an assignment that we had to watch an episode of On Being with Ruby Sales. And uh, it was online. So I remember watching the video and then I went back and listened to it, uh, the, the podcast. But um, for those who don't know, Ruby Sales, talk, talking about an amazing mm-hmm. womanist theologian, right? Um, Ruby Sales was, uh, I think she was 17. Yeah, she was around young, 17 in her teenage years. Yeah, yeah, she's very young. And um, she was at, a, she's a black woman. She was at a uh, some sort of... Um, civil rights event, a rally or something. I'm not sure exactly what it was, but uh, she was the target of a bullet and a white young seminarian, uh, a young man threw himself in front of her and took the bullet for her and died. Um, And so that kind of shifted her perspective from the way she tells it. And um, she has gone on to just become this most amazing uh, public theologian. And in this episode of On Being, she made this amazing comment. And I promise you, I listened to this episode like 15 times. I like, I, in fact, I think it's time for me to go listen to it again. Um, and she said something along the lines of, um, she, she said, we have a black liberating theology, but where is the white liberating theology? Where is this, the theology that, that, um, frees young addicted white people in Appalachia or uh, in, in Massachusetts or, or hungry white people in Appalachia? Where is their uh, liberating theology? And I was first so, so struck because what a womanist, that is such a, a quintessential womanist thing to do, right? Is to say, hey, you know, white people may oppress me as a, as, not me, but Ruby as a black woman, but I still want their liberation, mm-hmm. right? Like that, that is because if, if one is free, we're all, or when we're all free, something like that, yeah. you know what I'm trying to say? When one is free, we're all free, right? So like that is, is such a beautiful thing. But then it got me thinking like, oh crap, you know, she's right. Who's, who's going to do that? Who's going to come up with a white mm-hmm. liberating theology? Who's going to work on um, a theology of liberation for the white soul from our disfigurement of supremacy idea or supremacist ideology. And so that just really got me thinking about that and fascinated with it. And I started writing about it and thinking about it. And that's essentially Mm -hmm. where the the idea got started. So speaking of which, uh, of this sort of white liberation theology, and you talk about this at the beginning of your book, but what's the difference between being white and whiteness? Mm, That is such a good question. And it's, it's such an important one. So you know, being white is kind of the way you sh- you walk around in the world, the color of your skin, right? So, and there's varying degrees mm-hmm. of whiteness from a physical standpoint, right? Some people are are lighter than other white, some white people are lighter mm-hmm. than other white people. 
Um, but whiteness, capital W whiteness, is this this construct, this this constructed identity that comes with all of the baggage of power and privilege and supremacist ideology that um, that is does come originally from mm -hmm. religion, unfortunately, and um, it that is this this uh, this sort of identity that we get wrapped up in. And as white people, it's so important for us to understand that there's nothing inherently wrong with being white, with walking around in white skin. There's nothing wrong with that. But we have to be aware of the identity that we carry, that, that our white mm -hmm. skin carries, and the power that it offers us in any kind of interracial dynamic. It offers us power. Even, even in, a, in a dynamic that's not interracial, in, if in that, if I am having a, some sort of interaction with a white police officer, my whiteness is yes. still at play there. And because I'm white, I'm going to have a much easier time dealing with this police officer, even if there's no person of color in the room. Right. My whiteness mm -hmm, is still mm -hmm. at play. I had uh, I was in this anti-racism training last week. And one of the things that became very apparent to me is that um and, and this was specifically training regarding uh, racial stress responses within um, white people. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that I mentioned uh, to the group was that racial stress responses don't just happen when you as a white person are in in like a in a space in a physical space with people of color. Racial stress responses can mm -hmm. happen even when you're exclusively in spaces with other white people. Um, because mm -hmm. of the way that whiteness works, um, race is always at, at least the underbelly of conversations. And it's always at the underbelly because race tends to be the the water in which we swim. Right. And so even when exactly. it's not made, even if it's not explicit to the conversation, there are s racial stress responses that are always happening in the underbelly in very implicitly because conversations always in some way, shape or form are um, are oriented around race. Um, but yeah, but all yeah. that to say, like it can also include just simply having conversations with other white people um, and, and race totally. ends up still being a factor because of the way whiteness works. Totally. And if you doubt that, just, you know, sit around your Thanksgiving table and have Uncle Joe yeah. tell a racist joke and see how many people won't yeah. say anything. But you they're know? feeling a thing, right? Um, like they're literally their bodies have a yeah. like there's a gut thing that's happening within their bodies. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's actually one of the reasons why I wanted to write the the book and why I wanted to call it Good White Racist and, and um, why I did all the things. And that's because I the word racism is so, you know, so infused with so much mm -hmm. meaning. Right. And so it's, it's such a powerful, powerful word. And people are like, no, hell no, I do not want to be associated with that word. And I'm kind of like, no, if we can kind of kind of inoculate you against that that response to that word so that you can actually start to understand, get moved past the emotion of that word so that you can actually start to go, oh yeah, actually I can relate to the fact that I might have racist thoughts that go through my head, even though I don't want them there, that those will be people who can now have the courage to, to stand up to Uncle yep. Joe and be like, you know, 
Uncle Joe, that was totally hella racist and you need to knock yeah. that off in my in my mm -hmm. company or whatever. You know, I wanted to give people the the um, the tools and the the right yeah. to um, yeah. speak up about that kind of stuff. One of the things that you mentioned at the beginning is that whiteness and white supremacy are constructs. Um, you could even argue that they're like a mythos. So one of the things that um, maybe becomes convoluted in our minds is that just because it's a construct or because it's a mythos means, well, it must not be real then. Um, and in a sense, it's not real, but it's real in the sense that it actually has lived and material implications, right? With actual bodies that are, are actually lynched yes. or actual bullets that are actually aimed for certain bodies, right? Yes. Like, so anyway, it has real implications in that regard, but it's not real in that it's this divinely ordered thing. So anyway, all that's to say, how is white supremacy a mythos despite being so real? Well, it's, there's nothing biological that makes a white body better at something or, um, you know, better, better, better at something than any mm -hmm. other body, right? This is um, a, a psychological construct of the human mind that loves sameness, right? We love, our human brain is designed to find uh, things that are like us because it determines them to be safe. And so it, it dislikes difference because it determines it to be unsafe. And so we have to realize that we can practice agency mm -hmm. over that, right? Like we don't, we don't have to go along with that, with what our brain is telling us. Right. Um, and so it's, it's a myth because we are not actually as different as our brains are mm -hmm. telling us, right? Um, and yet, at the same time, there is difference. It's beautiful, and and if if we can learn, if we can teach our brain, our brains that this difference is actually beautiful and beneficial to us all, to humanity, um, we would actually really greatly mm -hmm. benefit from that, right? Um, so, trying to get back to your question because you know I'm getting ten, tangential here, but um, so so supremacy in and of itself is a complete fallacy. There's nothing that makes my white skin better than mm -hmm. anybody else's. Right. But, and this is a huge, but, and I had a, I a, love a huge fun butts, Instagram. Con huge butts. Of course. Nice. Why wouldn't you <laughs> no idea how to respond to that without a bottle of wine in front of me, Mason. <laughs> All right. Let's hear about this huge, butt. Uh, okay. So the huge, butt is that, um, there are, I'm all distracted now about huge butts. What was I even saying? I don't know where you're going with that. I mean, you really shouldn't have brought the huge butt into the conversation. Apparently not. Um, okay. So we were talking about supremacy and actual bodies. Oh, I had an like a really ridiculous Instagram conversation mm. with uh, a woman who was telling me that I should stop talking about race because the more I talk about it, 
um, it perpetuates mm. racism. So I shouldn't talk about racism because that perpetuates it. While if she just, you know, if I would just ignore it like she did, right. then it would all go away. Um, so I kind of had to explain to her that that's not actually the way it works because just because there's nothing that's better about my skin than anybody else's doesn't mean that my skin has not been um, authorized with a certain amount of agency and power that other skin colors have not mm -hmm. been offered, right? And there are very real obstacles that are placed in their way um, in, in, the, in the way of people of color that keep them from everyday regular things that you and I enjoy, like the ability to build generational wealth, the ability or access to mm -hmm. healthcare. Um, a lot of, I mean, there are so many myriad ways of, of that, that white people enjoy um, a privilege of ease and access that people of color have to jump over mm -hmm. so many hurdles. So it's a very real thing. And as you said too, it is a very real thing that that comes down to life mm -hmm. or death, right? People are truly uh, murdered because of their skin color. They are shot because of their skin color. They are lynched because of their skin color. And if you think that stuff is not happening mm -hmm. anymore, mm -hmm. you're wrong, right? It, this is not something that was happening mm -hmm. a long time ago. There are leaders of the, many leaders from the Black Lives Matter movement have been mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. killed. And that's something that mm -hmm. not a lot of people. Yeah, know. the medium by which no. lynchings and, and and these killings happen uh, may change, but the fact is mm -hmm. that a body is being murdered um, because of yes. their voice against the racism in which they experience. And what terrifies me, quite frankly, is that I see evidence of um, that same mentality. Uh, still uh, that lynching mentality is still very widely available should you want mm -hmm. to go find it. I mean, I just read a story the other day um, about a young girl. Is it, did Mardi Gras happen? Uh, I'm already? sure it's got to be coming up because next, next week is okay. Lent, so okay. So, so there was some, some, yeah. Okay. So there was something in um, there was something some kind of a of an event in New Orleans, I believe. And a young 12-year-old girl was called up to one of the floats in the parade. And the guy hands her a little doll, and it was a mammy doll with a mm. noose around its neck that they chose to give to a 12-year-old girl, right? A, tw a little 12-year-old black girl. So you can't tell me that the lynching mentality yeah. doesn't still exist. Yeah. It still exists Certainly. in this country. And and if and white people, in my opinion, cannot call ourselves good if we're not willing to stand mm -hmm, up to mm -hmm. that shit. Well, that that sort of leads me into my next question: is I, I could see somebody who picks up your book um, and is a little bit unconvinced by it, but it's still intrigued, but unconvinced. And, and the question in their mind might be that you know, if we're learning racism at such a young age, and then it becomes in, ingrained into white people personally and societally. Mm -hmm. How could a white person mm -hmm. ever not be racist? Like, why, why do we even attempt to even do anything different um, if, if this is just how ingrained it is and it's unescapable? 
Mm-hmm. So the the answer is you won't ever not be a racist, <laughs> most likely. <laughs> like that that's the thing. If you want to be a good white racist, mm-hmm. however, <laughs> what you'll do is you will practice agency over that. the The fact of the matter is, I, I really believe that um, true anti racism work is a lifelong process that is always going to start mm-hmm. with ourselves, right? If we truly want to be anti-racist, then the first place we have to attempt to be anti-racist is in our own psyche. And that is going to be like peeling a, 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 a what's the word? An eternal oh. onion, right? Like it's, it's going they to, have layers, <laughs> it's by the going way. to be, I know layers and layers like and an layers. Ogre. And yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Cause it's just like, you know, it's, it's, you're, you're always, you're going to just be at that point where you go, okay, I finally got it. And then damn it, another, it comes up Mm -hmm. in another place. There was another thing that you didn't think of another perspective, another way that racism operates that you didn't recognize. Right. So, and, and that's where people have to get comfortable with paradox. They have to be willing to understand that I can be a good person who really cares about this and still be racist and have racist yeah. ideology that I need to practice. Yeah, what, one of the over. things in a lot of the anti-racism training, especially around racial stress responses that I've learned is that sort of like the first thing that they tell you in these, in these trainings is that you will always, you know, you could take hundreds, thousands of hours of this training. You will still always mm-hmm. do that racist thing and say that racist thing. So the given, the given and the assumption here is that we will never figure mm-hmm. this out. Exactly. But exactly. also what needs to be given, and hopefully the training um, uh, elicits, is a response that better knows how, once that thing does happen, when that racist thing does happen, that you better know how to respond to it rather than you know backtracking yes. or, uh, or defending or, or attempting right. to... Uh, find comfort in that person of color that you may have just said the thing in, right? Like, you know, all the myriad of ways that we respond to something that we or someone else does or says that's racist. Um, But the given is that we will say that's racist thing or we will do that racist thing uh, despite how uh, committed we are to anti-racism. Yes, absolutely. And, and, to take it even a step further, you know, it's, it's one, and this is the process that I'm hoping the book will, will start people on. And that is that they, we do the the work in ourselves, Mm -hmm. right. And when we do that work and we're really challenged within ourselves and, and we're convicted, right. You know, we hear, we hear a lot. If you've been in these conversations around race, you'll, you might hear very often the, the phrase white Mm -hmm. tears, right. And it's often a sort of a derogatory, oh, here here's, goes the white person crying because somebody called them racist. And that's a very real thing. That's a, that's a not so great response to being called mm-hmm. out for racism, right? Um, is to center yourself and go, and usually I find that women will respond with tears and men in general with anger. You know, um, usually that's very stereotypical, but usually that's kind of the way, way it goes. Um, and, and it's, that's all about centering and defending whiteness and white goodness. Right. But one of my first, uh, my, my first podcast guests, uh, Carolyn said to me, you know, it's, it's okay to feel a sense of mourning. It's okay. And, and that's a different kind of white tear, right? That's the kind of tear where you're saying, 
holy shit, like I have been mm-hmm. a part of something evil and I don't want to do mm-hmm. that anymore, you know? And and there's a sense of real mourning and lament. Mm-hmm. And that leads, in my opinion, to repentance, yes. to yeah. true repentance. And repentance leads to action. And if we can get enough people who are going to s- start doing this internal work and stop being lazy and actually start doing this work, then I actually believe we can do take serious strides in deconstructing racist Mm -hmm. institutions Mm -hmm. and start working toward reparations Mm -hmm. and start actually changing the world. Today I have Cat and the Hurricane, and uh, I have both Cat and the Hurricane with me. Uh, <laughs> super great for you all to be with me. Cat, um, first, I gotta, I gotta go with you. What, what is it about having you as the namesake, and everybody else doesn't get their their names in this thing? What, like, do you? Is there some sort of lead singer syndrome going on? What's going on here? No, because when I started this, it was 2015 and it was far <laughs> before I ever met Alex or Ben. So they, I, I picked these guys up on the way. <laughs> okay, I see how it is. I see how it is. Well, I'm a big fan of the sound and I, I saw that you um, all have released a new album uh, back in, in February. So just a month ago now. Uh, how's that release been? Like what, what, I mean, it's been a month now. What, what's that whole process been like post release? Well, we're just super excited to finally have it out because it's been two years in the making. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had the entire album written before I met either of these people okay. and um, they helped me bring it to life. Uh, so it's a relief. It's it's mm-hmm. really, truly, uh, really exciting to finally have it done because mm-hmm. now we can move on and write mm-hmm. new stuff mm-hmm. and happier stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 oh. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, no, we've gotten lots of local support, too, because, like, we have been playing shows, uh, Kat and I as a duo, and then picking up Alex on the way for about two years. So we've been playing, like, local shows, like, every weekend for Mm. basically two years. Mm -hmm. And when we finally did release it, it's like we already had this network of people that were ready to, like, listen to it. um, So that's been cool just to, like, people in our community, like, celebrating with us. We had a packed release show at one of our favorite venues um, in town, and people, like, really showed up, so... That's awesome. That's awesome. I, I noticed that there have been a number of other releases. Um, does this feel like kind of one of the first like really robust full length album, really well recorded, well produced sort of albums? Does this sort of feel like this is kind of the first one of uh, of maybe hopefully many? Yeah, this, yeah. this one <laughs> definitely feels like the real deal because, uh, yeah, we we spent uh, a good chunk of time working on this album and a, a good chunk of our change that we've collected from doing shows mm-hmm. and such and selling merch um so yeah this really felt like the real deal and what made it really feel real was our release show where we had that venue packed mm-hmm. uh we had a friday night crowd on a sunday night and <laughs> there was not a single place to sit 
Mm-hmm. Um, we had two other bands that we're friends with uh, that were releasing albums at the same time. So we had a triple album release party. Mm-hmm. Oh, so, wow. Yeah, Madison really came out for that. Yeah, so, they did. Yeah, it was amazing. So good. That's super cool. Uh, so what was the like the writing process like in this particular album, maybe that differentiated itself from prior albums? Um, well, my albums are themed. Uh, they've, they see so far, there's only been two, um, but each of them have been themed, uh, based around a time in my life. Um, and the only way for me to kind of move on from that time in my life was writing about it and getting it out in the world so I could move on. So this specific one, uh, was, I guess it called, it was cultivated from, uh, like 2017 to like 2018. Um, it was just a, a transitional time in my life. And uh, I, I wrote it based on a relationship I had at the time that did not end up, you know, being successful or, uh, I mean, <laughs> healthy. Yeah. yeah. Or I don't think I've ever not. heard that in an album. I don't think I've ever heard that theme in an album before. Oh, yeah. yeah. Never. <laughs> totally new concept. Yeah. Um, but the writing process, uh, I don't know. Every time I've tried to sit down and write music, it, it feels like I, I write a, a group of songs at a time. Mm. And then that it's just like, oh, well, shoot, here's an album. Yeah. Uh, it just kind of happens by accident. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't know. <laughs> so Benjamin, and, and then I didn't catch the, the other person's name. What's the other person's name? My name's Alex. I use they, them pronouns. Hey, Alex. <laughs> uh, so... One of the things I'm curious, Kat, you mentioned that you sort of inserted the, re- the the other people in the band. What was that process like to kind of have people that didn't really write the music, but then kind of get thrusted into really help cultivating the creation of this album? So I feel- Alex can answer that or maybe Kat yeah. or maybe all three of you. Yeah, totally. I think chronologically it makes sense to talk about this well okay so i feel like when i i i started cat in the hurricane because my prior band broke up and all of those people in that band started going off and doing their own solo projects so i was like i want to do one too so i picked the name i made a facebook page and i started you know i started recording um and uh after that i was like well it'd be really cool to start looking into maybe i don't know a bassist or a keyboard player and I don't know. All of this, all this time, uh, Ben and I lived in Janesville, Wisconsin, at the same time, and I never came, never crossed each other's paths wow. until wow. Ben decided to perform at a local open mic that I had been attending for years. <laughs> and when I saw them, I had to introduce myself immediately. We hit it off. I came and saw them perform their own solo show at another bar, like in the same month. And then I eventually ended up messaging them. I was like, hey, what would you think about coming over and rehearsing some songs with me? And then we did. Yeah. And then the rest is history up until right now. Yeah. And along the way, like, it was around the time that I moved to Madison um, that uh, Alex over here joined the project because I moved in with them. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I feel like when I came into the project, so there were, all these songs that had already been written, um, most all of them uh, that we were focusing on at the time were what became the uh, Libra EP. And um, 
which is actually technically 30 seconds away from being a, a full-length LP. Truly. So, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, this, it seems long. Yeah. yeah, it is, right. Um, so, so yeah, we, we should just start calling it an LP. But anyway, um, an yeah, it's an album. So um, basically a lot of the melody and arrangement and structure, lyrics, everything was all done. Um, and they already had some pre-recorded drum tracks for some of their songs. And... Um, not all of them, though. There were some that we didn't even write until we were in the studio recording the album. Um, and I've been a drummer all my life, but I actually had never like consistently practiced and played on a full drum kit um, until I joined this band. And Kat was like, "Hey, I'll I'll buy you a drum kit if you're if you be my drummer." I'm like, "Yeah, do it." Um, <laughs> wow, what I a deal! Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's something I've always always wanted to do. Um, but uh so i'm still really fresh and so um yeah i feel like some of the things were kind of based uh, that i do on drums are based around what cat and ben had already kind of created um with drum tracks but um like i don't know just like practicing together and vibing together and even in the studio too we were working with a really wonderful um a uh, sound engineer uh, named Matt LaPlante um, here in Madison and like kind of worked on one of the songs over you kind of together. We knew some of the pieces, mm -hmm. but Matt had some really good suggestions that really kind of, I think made the song much more dynamic. Um, and yeah, I feel like otherwise it was just like me putting my own spin on some of the things that Kat was coming up with or that um, Kat and Ben had pre-recorded. There is there are a couple uh, of our new songs though that we just started writing that are like uh, that we play yeah much more collaborative and we we play them um, and we're very fortunate to play them on our uh, very short lived tour that we, <laughs> we just got home from. <laughs> I, that was gonna be my next question was, was sort of, I know that you're still kind of uh, kind of living in the midst of a, a of a release but have you start i mean you mentioned that you're writing some new songs it sounds like and even playing maybe some new songs is there already like an idea of future album and all that all right let me hear it yeah, yeah already already planned already almost got it packaged. booked got studio we, time booked and everything yeah we, yeah we've actually already oh spent some yeah um we we've recorded just a little bit of one song already um and yeah we've kind of tossed around i feel like we have Cat has a really solid idea of this next one. Yeah, it's probably going to be a three or four track EP. Uh, just really quick, simple. Like, we want to spit it out as soon as possible. And, like, thereafter, like, we can get to writing other things. Like, we just want to start pushing out music a lot faster because the last two albums took so long <laughs> to finish and get out. Like, we just have so much between the three of us that I think we can accomplish. And uh, I don't know, more music, the better. Like, it's just, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's actually funny because we, we've been, y'all have been playing these songs for forever, <laughs> including uh, like two to three of the songs that we're talking about for this future album. We've been playing it together for so long that when we announced the release of uh, the Libra album, um, one of our friends was like, oh my God, I can't wait to hear this song. It's, it's called Sorry. Oh my God, I can't wait to hear Sorry. It's it's finally going to be here. And we're like, ah, that's not going to be on this one. I'm going like, to I'm gonna need you to take that post down because that is not correct. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. And she's like, sorry, I just got really excited. <laughs> that's awesome. 
Well, thank you so much for sharing some of your music. I'm a big fan of the sound. I, I really love it. Um, and I, I love that it's indie rock, but also kind of in its own sort of pop and unique way. Um, you all are very talented. Stick with it. Thank, thank you. you. One of the things that you mentioned at the beginning is that religion has been intrinsically a part of the development of race and mm-hmm. actively perpetuating racism. How then mm-hmm. has the church contributed to racism? And then uh, my sort of subsequent question to that is, how can the church participate in anti-racism? Mm. Oh, that's a good question. Might okay. have thought of those. So, before, um, <laughs> so, so, you know, th- there's this whole thing called the doctrine of discovery, which was, and it's, it's just like now it's politics and religion in bed mm-hmm. together, you know, imperialism mm-hmm. and, um, big and butts and, uh, and, 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 and beds. Butts, I mean, you yeah. really, God, we all know where your mind always goes there, Carrie. Seriously. And I haven't even had my Friday night cocktail yet. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, but so you know, there's this history of um, the 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 Europeans wanting to go out and this uh, and discover the the world, right? And there's this idea of the doctrine of dominion, where where that people believed that that was God saying, go ahead and you know take whatever you want, as long as there aren't Christians mm-hmm. living there already, and um, so you can go ahead and take whatever you want. And then the Pope blessed that, you know. So the Pope was like, yeah, sure, go ahead, have fun, knock yourselves out, right? Go ahead and rape and pillage as long as they're not mm-hmm. Christians. It's all cool, right? So so there's this um, institutionalized um, approval of of this kind of behavior to just go out and conquer all of these people. Um, and it was kind of done under the guise of we're going to convert mm-hmm. them, but that was problematic because if we actually converted them, then we couldn't yeah. kill them or rape them yeah. or take their land. So it didn't work out so well. Um, so that's kind of how, where the, the, the history is. And that's a very, obviously a very simplified, mm-hmm. um, uh, rendition of that history. But the way that the church continually perpetuates racism, um, which has to, we have to talk about that before we can talk about how we can participate mm-hmm. in anti-racism, is um, through horrifically paternalistic missions mm-hmm. trips, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, to uh, using black and brown bodies on the fronts of our brochures to show how, quote, air quote, diverse we are, um, without actually engaging in any kind of um, justice-oriented activities. Rather, we maintain our charities that simply perpetuate the systems of poverty that keep people of color um, oppressed 
rather than doing any kind of work that would, would structurally change um, those systems of oppression or that would empower and practice mm -hmm. racial uplift mm -hmm. for those those people, right? Whether it's on our here in America or you know abroad, um, the church continually perpetuates that. As an institution, the church is is going to be really, really difficult to change, but because we are so often unwilling to not just listen to voices. We think, oh, we put put a black guy on the leadership team and mm -hmm. we're set. You know, we've filled the quota. We we're, we're now officially diverse, but that's not actually how it works. You know, I was speaking with um, our friend Carla, and she was saying, like, you know, hey, there's a there's another way to do a conference. There's a a not mm -hmm. white way mm -hmm. to do a conference. And well, what would that be? Well, I have no idea because you know what? I'm white. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I don't know what the not white way to do a conference would be. So maybe we should invite some people of color and just go ahead and have them mm -hmm. run the conference, right? And do it their way. And maybe we can learn something and be enriched by that, right? And churches as an institution, we don't mm -hmm. really want to do that. We want to have everybody assimilate into what our norm is, and our norm mm -hmm. is white. How do you see? Yeah, that makes sense. How do you see good white racist being liberating and inspiring theological work? Oh my God, I don't know if it's a liberating, <laughs> inspiring theological work, but um, I think that I think that it it for somebody who's brave mm -hmm. and for somebody who's uh, willing um, and who's who's ready to not be lazy. Um, and is willing to do the work and, and is will is mature enough to be uncomfortable that this is a book that can start them on a process of awakening that will enrich their lives like mm -hmm. a hundredfold, mm -hmm. in my opinion. I am, I am, I believe I am a much um better citizen of the world. Um because of the journey that I've taken confronting my own racism, which is still mm -hmm. here, by the way still here. <laughs> There's still so many blind spots that I have. Um, but, but because of the awareness, I feel like I am, a, I have so much more to offer the world, um, and to learn from the world than I was before I started even ever thinking about race. And so I hope that that's what this mm -hmm. book can mm -hmm. offer people. How can listeners get connected to you and your work, Carrie? The best way to find me is to just hit, hit me up on my website, carryconnolly.com. And um, you can get links to the book. You can get links to the class I'm teaching mm. around the book there. You can get uh, my podcast, the blogs, all the things. Awesome. There. Thank you so much. Uh, you're such a good friend. And I, I love seeing a book that uh, I initially saw the little... Uh, the little neurons synapping at one point, <laughs> and then did. all of a sudden those you little did. synapses became movements in your hand typing, and then now all of a sudden it's <laughs> this physical copy in front of me, and I, I love seeing it's that crazy. whole process. Uh, and so I'm glad Aww. to be able to talk about uh, a book that I, I saw conceived and and uh, yes. and uh, and pregnated and then labored. Like I saw the whole thing. <laughs> That's so true. You did. You did. And you know what? You're next, my friend. Yeah. What's well, your book coming out? I don't know. We'll see. All right. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much, Carrie. Yeah. Thank you.
If you'd like to connect with Carrie and Kat and the Hurricane and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mesa Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates. Want to be safe in everything you do, and it's not fair.